Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship today. If you have your copy of the New Testament today, <clears throat> I'll be sharing a message from 2 Corinthians 5 as we continue our conversation this spring around the topic of reconcile. And you'll remember that we have looked at that word already, that in the New Testament, the Greek word underneath the family of English words associated with reconciliation is taken from the accounting industry, where coins were exchanged and then accounts were reconciled, as it were. The Greek word is katalasso, and that particular Greek word is found several times in the text that we're going to read today here in 2 Corinthians um, 5. <clears throat> the uh, whole concept of reconciliation, obviously, is found throughout the New Testament. It is certainly connected to Paul's writings, as Paul has much to say about what it means to be reconciled. Uh, you may remember that we have printed this booklet for you. Uh, and there's all kinds of information in this booklet. You can get those throughout our campus today. If you haven't gotten one yet, you can find it online also. And in this booklet, every week, uh, Kurt Rice has written an introduction to the sermon that I'm going to share with you every week. And let me just read you an introductory word from Kurt today about this passage. Where Kurt has written, Mankind has long wondered about the grand questions of our existence. Where do we come from? Why are we here? How will this all end? Of course, the Bible offers a clear answer for anyone who will bother to read it. Another set of questions has to do with what went wrong and how can it be fixed. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 provides a wonderful response to that. And so that introduction for us is helpful, and we'll focus in on the latter part of this text, but I'll invite you to look with me. I've, I've entitled the message, Reconciled. If you'll just look with me at this text, 2 Corinthians 5, We'll begin at verse 11, and we are in the midst of a very complex conversation between Paul and the church at Corinth. Uh, in our daily Bible readings, we're already past this section. Um, when you come to chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, beginning in verse 2, you'll notice that the letter takes on a different tone. And the reason for that is the first six pages of this letter, Paul is addressing the entire church in Corinth, and there has been a level of brokenness between this church and Paul. There have been those who have opposed his apostleship, and their relationship has been very much challenged. Paul has attempted to bring them back into relationship with him, and the good news is a good number of the church and many of the church members have chosen to turn and re-engage with Paul. He begins to address them and chapter 7. And so we're not there yet. He's still talking to folks who have somewhat of a strained relationship with Paul, many of them looking at outward experiences rather than what Paul's challenging them to do is focus on what God has done in them, in him, and through them. So with that said, let's look at this text. Verse 11 of 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God. I hope it's also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. There's that word to those who are focused on the outward appearances. Some of them even accuse Paul of being out of his mind. 
So verse 13, he says, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. Paul used to be a Pharisee. He opposed the claim that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he viewed Jesus from this world's point of view. Paul says, we do so no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, I want to begin this morning by addressing just briefly the whole topic of redemption, because that's at the heart of this text. That's really underneath the whole story of reconciliation And here's what the Bible teaches about redemption. God is the one who is redeeming humanity and restoring creation. It is God's idea, not ours. And that is what the New Testament teaches. As a matter of fact, the word reconcile in the New Testament, when that word is used as a verb in the active voice, God is always the subject, either God or Christ. So God is the one who's reconciling, who's redeeming. If you look at verse 18, verse 18 says, all this is from God. So God is the one underneath the story of reconciliation and redemption. Verse 19, Paul says, God's reconciling the world to himself. So that's the consistent teaching of the Bible. In Genesis 12, when the story of redemption really begins in real time in the lives of human beings, On this particular stage, the human drama, God calls Abraham. In Exodus 3, God called Moses. In Jeremiah 31, God promised Jeremiah a new covenant that Israel would experience as it was going to be initiated ultimately by the Messiah. In Luke 1, God sent an angel to Zechariah to tell him, your son's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. In Luke 2, God sent an angel to Mary to tell her, You're going to have this special baby, this Holy One of God, born in you through the miracle of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 1, God sent an angel to Joseph to tell him that the child Mary was going to have was conceived of the Spirit and was going to be the one who would save people from their sins. In John 3, the Bible says that God loved the world so much, he sent his son, his one and only son, and if you believe in him, you'll have everlasting life. So... The point is, God is at the heart of this story. God is the one who is behind. He's the originator of the story of redemption. Restoration takes place because of the activity of God. Now, I've told y'all before, my, one of my spiritual gifts is just stating the obvious. So, this is the obvious. God is underneath and behind the story of redemption. It's not our story wasn't our idea, this is God's idea, okay? Now, 
So what happens to us when we're redeemed? What is it that occurs in my life and in your life when you step into this story of redemption? Well, one of the words that's used in the New Testament to help us understand it is the word reconciliation. But the Bible's very specific. And here's what the Bible teaches. We can be reconciled to God only through Jesus Christ, his son, our savior. The scripture is clear. This is God's answer. I want you to notice verse 17. Paul says, if any person be in Christ, that phrase, in Christ, Paul uses it over 160 times in his writings. He points us to this unique relationship in Christ. And so if you and I wanna know the answer to our fundamental problem as human beings, the fundamental foundational challenge that every single human being must face, the answer to it is Jesus. So I know that most of you in this room And many of you who are joining us online already know this. But just to be clear, let me just make sure we all understand it. Here's what the Bible teaches about reconciliation. You and I are born into this world as human beings, and we are born sinners. We have a sin nature. We have inherited it from the brokenness of Adam and Eve. And there is absolutely nothing we can do about it. You can't undo it. You can't fix it. You can't will it away. You can't change it. You are a sinner when you're born on planet earth. That's just how it is. And guess what sinners do? They sin. That's what we do. Here's what sin does to us. It does a lot of things to us. And I don't have time to explain all of it. But let me just state it very simply. At the end of the day, sin separates us from God. And because of that, you and I have to grapple with that brokenness and that separation. Here's the problem we have. There is nothing you can do about it. You can't overcome your sinfulness. If you could imagine us standing on one side of the Grand Canyon and God is on the other side of the Grand Canyon and somehow we're gonna try to make our way to God. Can you imagine we're gonna try to somehow muster up enough energy, enough support, enough athleticism, we're gonna get a running start and we're gonna jump across the Grand Canyon. It's absolutely impossible. Not even the greatest athlete on the planet can do it. It just can't happen. The Grand Canyon is not big enough. We are separated from God for eternity and there's nothing we can do about it. Everything you try is futile because everything you try to bridge that gap and get across that chasm, you do it with sinful hands. So there is nothing you can do about it. There is no hope. There is no answer. You and I are standing here. We are separated from God and there's nothing we can do about it. But praise God, God knew that. So God did something about himself. And here's what the Bible says. God sent his son Jesus and Jesus came to this earth and he is perfect and sinless and he gave his life for us. So here's what happens. Look at verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. He took our sin and he gave it to Jesus. He transferred it to Jesus. He placed it on Jesus. Jesus then died on the cross on our behalf 
for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so those sins could be paid for. And Jesus himself has laid down across that chasm. He now is the bridge, and he's the only bridge that will lead us all the way to God. He is the only perfect, sinless Savior. Every other founder of every other major religion, pick one, Every single founder of every other major world religion is a sinner and a broken and fallen creature. Every single one. Pick one. Doesn't matter who they are. Every founder of every world religion is a broken, fallen, sinful creature. Our founder is the sinless, spotless son of God. And he gave himself up sacrificially for our sin. He died on the cross. He was resurrected from the dead to never die again. So, just to be clear, how are we reconciled to God? In Christ. That's the only way. There is no one else to bridge the gap. Everybody, everybody falls short no matter who they are, except Jesus. And so reconciliation, it's only possible through Jesus Christ, our Savior, God's Son. And so notice what the, what the text says in verse 19, God is not holding our sins against us any longer because he has placed them on Jesus. So Jesus himself said, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What a powerful statement. Sometimes people say to me, you know, you Christians, y'all are so exclusive. My answer to that is, take it up with Jesus. I didn't come up with this. Jesus is the one who said, I'm the only way. The Bible says in Acts 4, verse 12, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Guess what that rules out? Every other way, except Jesus. So fundamentally, what I need as a human being more than anything else is to be reconciled to God. And when that happens, everything changes. Look what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Paul says, therefore, if you're in Christ, I love how it says it in the Greek text. This is what Paul says in Greek. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. That's all it says, new creation. In other words, the old way of life, this, this, this present evil age, the, the, the old things that used to guide me and drive me, everything's new. The old is gone, the new has come. And so, Reconciliation, it is God's miraculous redeeming work in your life and in mine, praise his name. Now, are y'all still with me? <clears throat> okay, now, guess what that does to us now? When you've been reconciled to God, you and I now have an assignment. And let me talk about it for just a couple of minutes real quickly. What is it? Well, it's to be reconcilers. Here's what's happened to me and you. We've been rescued, we've been redeemed, we've been restored into a relationship with God, we've been reconciled to God, okay? So now we've been sanctioned by God to be engaged in the ministry of reconciliation. 
Two things that means. First of all, the message of reconciliation is ours to share. Second, the reality of reconciliation is ours to practice. So it's a, it's a twofold thing. The message, well, my goodness, we're Christ's ambassadors. What do we call our youth choir here at this church? Chi Alpha, Christ's ambassadors. That's who you are. That's where that comes from. We are representatives of Christ. That means, as a church, we've been talking about evangelistic sensitivity. It means that we're supposed to be sensitive to the people around us who need to know this. They need to know this story. They need to know the fundamental thing they need in their life. Our fundamental conversation as Christians, our fundamental conversation as Christians, not about abortion, it's not about homosexuality, it's not about world peace, it's not about the economy. Our fundamental conversation as Christians is about Jesus. And it's time for us to reclaim that. Every other conversation falls underneath that one. We start with Jesus because we believe he is the answer. So we have a message to share the good news. But then secondly, y'all, the message is ours to share, but the reality of Reconciliation, that's ours to practice. Here's what I've learned about it. It's hard. Um, if it wasn't hard, we could all just get along with each other, couldn't we? And why can't we just all get along? Because it's hard, that's why. Here's what I've discovered in my life. There's just too many people that are just wrong. That's, that's what I've just discovered. <laughs> Makes it hard. I get it. I have to deal with it all the time. Do you? Any of y'all ever had a broken relationship in your life, in your family, among your friends, work, school? It just happens. And uh, it's hard. Here's what I've learned about it. If it were easy, we'd all be reconciled. It's the last thing the devil wants. The devil hates to see examples of God's restorative work in real people's lives. He'd rather us just talk about it. But reconciliation is not something you talk about. It's something you engage in, and it's really hard. This past Wednesday, um, I led our pastor's Bible study, and the title of my message was The Journey of Reconciliation. And I would encourage you, if you have a chance to watch it, it's on our Facebook page, it's on uh, YouTube, um, Vimeo, whatever. And, um, but one of the things that I talk about in that Bible study is, it's just hard to do. Here's what I've learned about reconciliation. It, it requires honesty. Um, you've gotta be honest about your feelings. Humility. You, you, you got to be humble. It requires sorrow. There's gotta be some pain in reconciliation. It, it, it requires repentance. It's not good enough to just be sorry. We have to change. When I was in seminary, one of my favorite professors was Dr. Jack McGorman. He turned 100 a while back and now he's gone on to be with the Lord. Just godly man. He said years ago when he first started preaching and teaching, he was a young professor at Southwestern and he had signed a statement that said, that he would never participate in publicly criticizing another colleague at the seminary. And it was just a, a trust 
that all the professors have. He said one day he was in class, he was young, there was a certain professor there that he disagreed with and one of the students said something about that professor and Dr. McGorman chimed in and agreed. He said he went back to his office, he realized what he had done, he knew it was wrong, he knew he had violated a trust and he said, I just sat and I just, I just, I just, I didn't know what to do. He said, I finally decided the only thing to do was first of all, was to tell God I was sorry. Second of all, to say I'll never do this again. But third of all, to go to that professor. He said he walked out of his office and he said that walk from my office to his, walk, his office was never longer than it was that day. He said I started walking. He said I got down there and his door was closed and he said I was so glad. He said so I lightly tapped and I heard this come in. Oh man. He said, I went in, I sat down, and he said, I just need to tell you what I did today. I realized I signed the statement just like you. I would never participate in publicly criticizing a colleague. I did it today. I criticized you. I'm sorry. It'll never happen again. That man chose, out of God's grace, to forgive Dr. McGorman. And Dr. McGorman said, I've never done it again. It had been almost 40 years when I heard the story. He said, I can still feel it. He said, but I've never done it again. That is repentance. There's sorrow, there's pain, there's honesty, there's confession, and there's change. You see, reconciliation is really hard when nobody wants to change. It's just really hard. When nobody wants to be honest, nobody wants to be humble, and nobody wants to change. It's really difficult. I don't know if you've heard the story Back in the 15th century in Ireland, there were two prominent Irish families, and they were embroiled in a bitter dispute over the position of Lord Deputy, the butlers of Ormond and the Fitzgeralds of Kildare. It was a bloody battle. Family members lost their lives, some of them lost their limbs. It was terrible. Finally, the butlers realized the Fitzgeralds were going to win. So they fled to St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin and they locked themselves inside the chapter house. The Fitzgeralds chased them. They followed them to St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin. Gerald Fitzgerald, who was the leader of the Fitzgerald clan, his theology and just his sense of decorum would not allow him to fight inside St. Patrick's. But he no longer wanted to fight. He was ready to be reconciled. And so he implored the Butler family to come out of St. Patrick's Cathedral and have a conversation of reconciliation. The Butlers refused. They said, we don't trust you. We think you'll kill us. So Gerald Fitzgerald ordered a hole to be cut in the door and he stuck his arm in. And he said, if you don't trust me, just cut my arm off. But if you trust me, take my hand and let's reconcile. The leader of the Butler clan believed that it was a genuine offering and he grabbed his hand and then later the doors opened and these two families reconciled. Today you can go to St. Peter's, I mean St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin, have a picture of it. And you can see the door of reconciliation. 
the Irish call it chancing your arm. He chanced his arm. And instead of losing it, he gained the gift of reconciliation. You know, sometimes you got to cut a hole in a door and take a risk and chance your arm. You can't force the other one to grab that hand in reconciliation, can you? But they may never grab it if you don't offer it. You see, sometimes somebody has got to take a step. I realize it's hard, y'all. You think I don't live in a real world? You don't think I know what it's like to have my feelings hurt and to sit there and think someone else is hurting and I'm thinking, mm-hmm, you ought to be hurting. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. After that, if that's how it's gonna be, hurt. Yeah, for a little while. Well, yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Katie Hodges has written this in our Reconciled booklet. She says, as mentioned before, reconciliation is not typically something we strive for in Western culture. Certainly it ought to be stated that sometimes it's appropriate to leave a relationship. Some relationships are so unhealthy and toxic that no one ought to return to the abuse or endangerment. Let me just say that I agree with that. Some relationships are toxic. Toxic relationships should be the exception, not the norm. If every relationship you have is toxic, you need to look in the mirror. Occasionally we have them, but they shouldn't always be toxic. Here's what she says. Overall, though, our culture has blessed the quick and painless elimination of any relationship that is fractured. Mm. We're encouraged to leave a friendship rather than to circle back and make amends. We feel blessed to walk away from any association that's more difficult than we initially imagined. Divorce is still far too common. Katie Reed Hodges. Wow. Yeah, making amends. It's hard, isn't it? I, I know y'all know the story. It took two of my all-time favorite men in the history of our country are John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Two great patriots the second and third presidents of the United States. Our little granddaughter, Ada, she studied John Adams this year at school. I saw her bobblehead that she made of President Adams. He's one of my favorites. You know, these two men, they met at the Continental Congress when our nation was in its infancy, struggling with its desire of freedom. Jefferson's wife died right as the war ended, and Adams and his wife took care of Thomas Jefferson. Invite him into their home, served him meals, and Adams and Jefferson began this beautiful letter writing relationship. Jefferson would go on to be an ambassador to Paris, Adams would be an ambassador to England. John Adams would run against Thomas Jefferson to be George Washington's first vice president, and he won, he defeated Jefferson, and he went on to become the second president of the United States. John Adams was a Federalist, that was the name of his political party. Thomas Jefferson was a Democratic Republican, a different party. 1800, these two men begin to feud with each other. They're running for president against one another. And it was a nasty political campaign. And America was divided. If you could just stretch your imagination somehow, <laughs> I know it would be hard to imagine a fractured America with two different parties representing almost majorities, but if you could just go with me for a minute, that's what it was like. 
And the two men said, their campaign said some very unkind things about one another. And Thomas Jefferson won. He defeated John Adams. And in 1800, Jefferson would then go on to become the third president of the United States. John Adams was offended and was not appreciative of the things that were said about him. And so he left before the inauguration of the new president. So if you can imagine, at the inauguration, the sitting president was missing. It was very conspicuous that he was not present. And the two men severed their relationship for 12 years. They didn't speak. They didn't write. They just carried the animosity. Two great patriots. Two of the best minds, political minds, our nation would ever produce. John Adams, Thomas Jefferson. In 1812, Dr. Benjamin Rush, friend to both, implored them both, please, please get back together. He said, you both know too much. You, your minds are too great. We need you. Our country is in its infancy. John Adams wrote Jefferson the first letter, 1812. Jefferson responded in kind. For the next 14 years, over 300 letters were shared in the corpus of material for these two great men. I would encourage you to go and research and read some of what they said to each other. These were two of the greatest political minds our nation's ever produced. And we're so grateful we have that wealth of material from these two men. Would you believe, here's what's fascinating. July the 4th, 1826, the 50th year anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, those two men died on the same day. Jefferson, younger, Adams, much older. Jefferson died first. Adams, he had had his Twitter account canceled, so he didn't realize what had happened. So he didn't know. He thought Jefferson was still alive. So Adams died. You know what his dying words were? Words of hope. Here's what he said. Still Thomas Jefferson survives. In other words, most historians think that what John Adams was saying was, I'm older, my time has come, but at least Thomas Jefferson is still alive. Aren't you glad these two men made amends? You see, reconciliation, what I know about it is, it's hard. But when it happens, it brings great joy. And here's what it does. It deepens our relationship with God and with each other. And it builds confidence in us to weather storms. And so I want to encourage you and myself to embrace the ministry of reconciliation, both the message that we're to share and the reality that we are to practice as God's people. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> well, Father, we... Uh, we love you. We're grateful for your love for us. And today, Lord, we're thankful. We're thankful for the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, the reconciling presence of Christ in our lives. We're grateful. And we ask, Lord, that you would find us to be faithful in our ministry of reconciliation. And Lord, there are those today who find themselves in very hard places. 
And some of them perhaps feel like they've done all they know to do. And if so, may they just turn to you for support and comfort and grace. And may they realize that if possible, perhaps the last chapter has not been written. And so we pray for your, your love and your healing to take place. We, have, we know, Lord, there are some who have carried hurt and pain for years. There are toxic relationships characterized by abuse. And, Lord, we're saddened by it all. And we know sometimes that's just how it is. And we pray for grace for those as well. But we ask God that we would be faithful to you as believers, as mature believers, to somehow find our way in it all and to continue to share the beautiful message of reconciliation and practice the reality of it in our everyday lives. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.